0: Two weeks ago, we did a little bit of revision, seeing as that was the, the one-year mark of our relaunch, and we wanted to uh, go back and take a look at um, uh, at just some of our vision and some of the stuff we've shared. By the way, my one ear is fully blocked, the other one is half-blocked, so if I'm speaking too loud or too soft, someone just needs to wave at me. I can't make out any during worship, I'm like, I think they're sounding good. I think, I, I know, I'm i sounding terrible, because you know you know singers will like block the one ear to hear they're sounding, because they can actually hear themselves, I'm like, wow, I can hear myself, I'm so glad I'm not on the microphone right now. Anyway, so just wave if it looks like like I'm going too high or, or too low, but we took a look at our, at our vision, and we especially focused on how we want to order our lives around the three goals of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did, or to put it a different way, doing what Jesus would do if He were you, or if He were me. So that was a couple of weeks ago, what I want to take a look at Today, um, in fact, I think we might have the vision statement to put back up on uh, the screen over here. The first part is that we're here to reach people with the life-giving message of Jesus. I want to focus on that life-giving part. Sometimes we need to be reminded that that actually what we are a part of, what, what we have the privilege of participating in, giving to serving in, and the invitation that is being extended to others. Guys, it's, we're not inviting people to something that's going to make their lives worse, to something that, that's going to put an, an unmanageable load uh, or burden on their lives. We're not inviting people to like, hey, if you can suck it up long enough and kind of live as a semi-martyr for the rest of your life, maybe, maybe eternity will be worth it. Um, and that's not to say that there won't be challenges, in some cases enormous challenges, but in it all, it is life-giving. If it's not life giving, it's not Jesus. I just wanna be clear. And, and by the way, you can, we can be a church and, and we can sincerely be wanting to serve God well and represent God well and yet perhaps not actually get it right at communicating and living in a relationship that is life giving. It is life giving, it should bring life regardless of circumstances. Paul and Silas, uh, the New Testament tells us, were in prison. Beaten, bloodied—I don't know if they were cold or not—but they were, but they were still worshiping at midnight. Had a joy that is like that's not denial. That's not great drugs. That's life-giving. That is that is when they are so convinced, they are so compelled. In fact, Paul, Paul, in in one occasion in the book of Acts, it records where where, where he is saying goodbye to the elders at, at Ephesus for the last time, and they are they are begging him not to leave. And, and by the way, my opinion is that. It, in the New Testament context, often when referring to elders, it was probably the local church pastors. Paul was like an apostle. There were pastors slash elders in all these different towns. And one of them actually prophesied. He took his belt off and tied his hands. He said, Paul, all we, like all that is ahead of you is basically suffering for the cause. Which, by the way, was an accurate prophecy. It was correct. But then they did what so many of us do and they added their own interpretation to it. So that must mean you shouldn't go. And then I think it's in that context that Paul in Acts 20, verse 24, says his famous line, at least, at least a line that that struck me the first time I read that as a 19-year-old, and it has stuck with me since then. My life is worth nothing to me unless I complete the work for which I've been called. Paul had a perspective that was like, it doesn't matter what you do to me, it doesn't matter what happens, it doesn't matter if you kill me, great. If you I mean, I get to be with Jesus. If you if you keep me alive, I get to spread the gospel. It's a win-win. It was life-giving. We are invited to, and we want to invite others to, and we want to be a part of spreading and sharing the life-giving message of Jesus. It's not life-giving. It was just theory. It's not life-giving if it's just a set of beliefs. It's life-giving when we are living in a vital, vibrant, ongoing, you know, two-way relationship with God, which which we take the rest of our lives developing. Don't be discouraged if you're at a season where where you're not feeling anything. Where it's not feeling like springtime. It's not feeling like summer. Winter is a season. That's okay. There are not a lot of evangelical Christians, especially Pentecostal charismatic Christians, that seem to accept that winter is a season. Winter is a season. It's okay to go through dry seasons, to go through mysterious seasons or painful seasons, but but we keep going. So don't be discouraged if we will persevere. I'm telling you, spring will come again. Summer will come again. It is life-giving. It is life-giving. Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, that he's come to give abundant life or, or, or another translation, life and life to the full. In other words, he's come to offer something that is life-giving. Something starts to actually slowly but surely bubble up. And even the bubbling up might sound a little bit too dramatic for some of us. It's, it's something that just starts to simmer or maybe a better illustration would be that of a seed that's just slowly, slowly, slowly starting to sprout. And we don't know how long it takes, but I'm telling you, if we will just prioritize journeying with Jesus, it is life-giving. One of the passages that I shared at our uh, Legacy Team conference last year when we were relaunching, it was a few passages out of the book of Matthew that, again, it just struck me so deeply and it it has continued to mean something to me to the point that I'm willing to like build on. I believe that that it is consistent with theology and doctrine of the New Testament, theology and doctrine of salvation, the gospel. I don't have time to unpack it in great detail, but Matthew 4 verse 23 says that Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee Teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news of, about the kingdom. So that just means teaching and preaching. That's actually what preaching means. It's to actually proclaim. It's to announce some of the some of the promises, some of the good news, some of the invitations. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. Now, if you were here, Lasha, you would remember me making a really big deal about it. None of you were terribly blown away, so I was a bit disappointed. But 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 it has still stuck with me. So if no one else gets it, that's okay. But the fact that that is referring to two different words, which in the original Uh, Greek, which is translated into English, they are two different words, regardless of how English translations uh, define them, they are two different words that mean two different things. So so one of them does mean to be healed physically, like he does in many cases, not in all cases, in many cases he does heal physically, but he also goes on to heal holistically, every disease. He, he He goes on to heal psychologically, emotionally. Spiritually, the word salvation is, is the same word used repeatedly throughout the New Testament regardless of whether the context is to be set free, as in, as in spiritually we made new, or to be healed, or to be rescued. So salvation is all-encompassing. It is holistic. Jesus came to teach, preach, and to heal every kind of disease and illness, I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases in the message, paraphrase where he says that he also healed people of their diseases and the bad effects of their bad lives. Almost the exact same thing is recorded several chapters later in Matthew chapter 9, reading in the New Living Translation from verse 35, again it says, Jesus traveled almost exactly word for word through all the towns of the, uh, and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues, announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. Again, Eugene Peterson for the win. Matthew 9, 35, and the message a paraphrase says, he healed, he healed their diseased bodies, healed their bruised and hurt lives. So, Jason, what are you trying to get at? One of the biggest ideas that, that, I, that I wanna not just share with you and maybe have it registered intellectually, but maybe something happens in your in your heart, in your soul, before you leave here today, is simply two words: don't settle. Don't settle. I think so often we settle for something less than life-giving. I think when it comes to our family, when it comes to our gener- the generations after us, when it comes to the generations before us, when it comes to 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 our purpose, when it comes to some of our mental health challenges, when it comes to Pretty much everything that matters to us, I think that if Jesus were here, I I, I say this cautiously, I think he would say, don't settle. Don't settle. I've come to heal every illness and every disease. I've come to heal anything that is wrong with us physically and, and the effects of just living in a broken, fallen world, having grown up in a broken, fallen family, having come from, from a line of generations of family where, where people had learned certain coping skills, certain, certain habits that either led to life or led away from life. I've come to bring life and life to the full. It is life-giving and everyone is invited. Two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that the invitation is the widest, broadest possible door, but it is to a narrow way. The invitation is to anyone, whoever will, and it is to life. But by the way, that life is found on a narrow path. Don't settle. Don't settle. Another thought that that crossed my mind as I was trying to pray and, and prepare for this message is don't let a label be a limit to God's legacy. Don't let a label be a limit to God's legacy. Everyone has labels. Whether we like it or not, whether it's conscience, conscious or not, we, we have labels. We have, we have things that, 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 def, that we allow to define us, to limit us, and to, in some cases, actually actually draw us away from God's purposes, and my concern is that I think so many of us settle for those labels. We settle for that definition. We settle for that description, and again, the great news is that the New Testament is filled with examples, and the Old Testament, by the way, but the New Testament in particular is filled with examples of people that that allowed God to redeem their labels instead of keep them limited by their labels and this is the invitation for us if we're not going to settle if we're not going to settle we're going to say god where am i allowing a certain a certain description a, serp- a certain definition a certain label where am i allowing that to actually limit me unhealthily there are healthy limits they make no mistake there are healthy limits but but where i'm allowing this to actually cause me to to settle and survive and just hang on By the skin of my teeth, God, where are you wanting me to actually lift my eyes to trust you for more because you've called me to a life-giving life? Don't settle. Don't allow the labels to limit God's legacy. Allow God to actually redeem some of these labels. In the New Testament, we see Paul, who was effectively a murderer. He was was persecuting Christians. If anyone had a reason to be riddled with guilt and shame and condemnation, I think it would have been Paul. I mean, unless unless you've been part of part of helping persecute and in some cases even murder Christians because of their faith. Now, I mean you've got to be pretty hardened not to feel some level of ugh that was a fail. When you actually realize, oh wait, this is wait, this is actually true. He he is he is God. He didn't allow that label, And they were labels. People, Christians didn't even want to meet with Paul. We're like, we've heard the stories. There was no social media back then. It wasn't like he trained it. It's just that they heard. They heard that Paul was involved in the persecution and murder of Christians. So, so, so the early believers <coughs> didn't want to meet with Paul. He was labeled. Paul didn't allow that to limit him because he knew that God had called him to something significant. And so he allowed God to actually redeem his past, to redeem his, his pedanticness. He's, he's, he's almost like obsessive-compulsive you know, uh, view towards, towards getting everything right and being, and being detail-oriented and theologically right and, and fighting, being willing to lay his life down for something. God redeemed that to ultimately becoming, arguably, after Jesus, the most significant man in the Christian faith in helping spread the gospel. Some of you know the story of John Mark, where, where Paul, who now many years later, he's a significant leader, he's, he's trusted, he's respected. Barnabas, by the way, who 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 was a, who had, a, who had the gift of encouragement, Barnabas was willing to bring Paul um, in and say, guys, I can vouch for him, trust him. Then later on, Paul and Barnabas have a little bit of a falling out. You think it only happens in church in the 21st century? It's like, they a little bit of a falling out. Because, because Barnabas, again, He's an encourager, so he can see what is not as though it could be one day. So he's looking at John Mark saying, saying Paul, we need to take John Mark with us on this next mission trip. And Paul's like, no ways. He let us down last time. He, he, he kind of betrayed us. He walked away last time. And, and Barnabas and Paul had such a strong disagreement, Acts 15 tells us, that they actually parted ways. Now, I don't know about you, if I was John Mark, I'd be like, okay, uh, sorry guys, I guess, uh, I guess I'm done, cancel culture, there was cancel culture already in the New Testament in the first church because John Mark had made a mistake, it, was, it would have been so easy for John Mark to be completely discouraged and completely limited by his failure because the Pope effectively said, I want nothing more to do with you, he wasn't the Pope, but like he had a significant status. Thank God for Barnabas, who's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to allow that label, that failure in the past, to limit what God has called him to. Some of you know the story of um, Mary, one of the Marys, not Mary, Jesus' mother, although even that, like you're a teenager. That's a whole other story. I mean, she's labeled as an adulteress. That's another limit, by the way, which she had to just... Keep trusting God. Just keep moving forward. But, but, but Mary, uh, I think it was Magdalene, came from a pretty, pretty hectic past. You get a glimpse of it if you've watched the Chosen series. Scripture records that, that at 1.7 demons had to be cast out of her. She didn't allow that label to limit what God had called her to. Peter. Yes, like, he just opened his mouth and changed feet. He didn't allow that to limit him. Timothy, Paul had to say to him, stop saying that you're too young. Like, like, like deal with some of that anxiety. He, off, he suggested that he drink a little bit of wine. I don't know if that's still, but, but back then he was like to, to, to like, to like settle, not a lot, a little, just to settle your stomach. Like, you, you're getting anxious, Timothy. Stop, stop it. Stop it. I think Paul was, was, was such a father in the faith, to younger men, where he's like, no, stop it, stop believing that, stop saying you're too young, no, no, stir up the faith, stir up the gift that, that, that God gave you that was confirmed when, 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 the, when the hands were laid on you, he breathed faith and life into, into Timothy saying, don't settle, I think he would be saying to some of us today, stop it, Stop limiting yourself by a label. Stop limiting your kids. Stop limiting that friend. Stop limiting your colleagues. Stop stop limiting what God could do in your school or in your class or in your grade. Stop saying, I have no influence. Stop saying I'm not cool. I, stop it. You've been called to a life-giving life, and we are here to reach people with the life-giving message of Jesus. So let's not settle. Again, I don't have time to unpack this whole story, but there's a great story in Mark chapter eight, verse 22. I don't know if any of you are familiar with a pastor, pastor, author, movie producer, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, he's also an overachiever, uh, Dr. Samuel Rodriguez. He shared a message at the conference that also—it's like it's stuff that you know, but just the way that he got it across was uh, hectic. In between a lot of shouting, but 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 there were some good there were some good points, and he told and he told the two stories of of men that had been healed by Jesus. They were blind. And in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, we, we, we read this account at, of how Jesus healed this blind man, but, but he only healed him partially. And when he asked him what he sees, he said, I, I see people that look like trees. And basically, the point that Samuel Rod, Rod, Rodriguez was making is don't settle for trees. Don't settle for trees. He, he, he wanted to see completely. He didn't settle bear in mind, see, he could see nothing, so it would have been easy to settle for trees. At least I can see when, when there's movement. No, no. He wanted that complete healing. Jesus prayed for him again, and he got that complete healing. Don't settle. But we read a different story. So we're so tempted to make to create formulas, and, and, and we love our science and we love to build things systematically so that we can control the miracle, or control the healing or control the outcome. And I'm with you, I wish we could. Jesus tells a, or a different story is told of Jesus in John chapter 9. In fact, it takes up the whole chapter. It is a chapter worth reading. The Bible is not boring. John chapter 9. He has a man that's been born blind. The first concern from his disciples are like, why? Well, did he sin? Which is weird, because how do you sin in, in the womb? Did his, did his parents sin? Which is also a little bit hectic, because he's so telling me that he'll be punished because of his parents. Then you go back to Ezekiel 18, where, where God, through Ezekiel the prophet says, like, stop quoting this thing. That, that the parents eat the grapes and the children's lips pucker, which is basically saying, stop. And, and then he goes on, to, he goes on a roof, God through Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 18, saying, saying, no, the person who has sinned will suffer the consequences. The person who has not sinned will be blessed. So, so it's weird that his disciples are even concerned with this, but here's the major idea, is that Jesus, I mean, in both these cases, it's weird. The first case, Jesus spits in the man's eyes, Okay. I do not suggest, I don't don't know what it would take, what kind of confirmation you'd have to have on 17 different levels. I'm telling you, don't spit in someone's eyes, okay? The second time, this story in John 9, he spits into the the soil and forms mud and then puts it onto the man's eyes. Again, that's a bit gross and it's hectic. This was before COVID, uh, but still, still, it was hectic. But then he does something interesting. You see, again, he doesn't do it exactly the same. We want him to always do it the same way. He does it different ways. He says, go and wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. In other words, you do what you can do. I'll do what I can do. That's Jesus speaking. You do what you can do. We we need to trust God to do what only he can do. We need to be obedient to working through labels, working through limits, working through the things that, that we think define us and that are actually keeping us back, and that are causing us to settle. We need to actually be willing to do what we can to be a part of. And yes, it is a miracle. The miracle is 99.999999% God. Okay, it's 100% God. But it's almost like what allows it is obedience. If Jesus says, go and wash your eyes that I've just put spitty mud onto you. Go and wash the mud out of your eyes. Maybe he's been prompting you, inviting you to do something that you feel like, what's the point? And it might be, it might be so underwhelming. It's so not dramatic. You know, like the, <clears throat> excuse me, like like, like the, the very, very powerful, wealthy official who came to Elijah to be healed of leprosy, and he's like, he, he wouldn't even see the man. He just he just gets his servant to say, just go wash in that, in that river. He's like, we got better rivers where I come from. The man's servants had to bring some common sense, saying, hey, if the man of God says, go and wash, in, just go, like, what have you got to lose? But but I I just don't think it was significant enough. It wasn't dramatic enough. It wasn't impressive enough. It wasn't this one. It wasn't. It was so ordinary, but he needed to obey. And as he came out of the water, he was healed. Of leprosy, we do what we can. We ask God to do what only He can. Don't let a label limit your legacy. Whether it's I was orphaned or abandoned, I don't know. I've never known what it is to have a healthy father or a healthy mother. Maybe you feel like you are way undereducated, or I'm divorced, or I have a criminal history, or I was an addict, or maybe I'm still an addict, or I have this violent temper, or I've committed adultery, or this is too late in my life, or I'm I'm dealing with some kind of mental health disorder and there's nothing. I'm just saying, is there anything that God would say? Don't allow that label to limit you. Don't settle. We are here to reach people with the life-giving message of Jesus. Let's do what we can. Trust God to do what only He can do. A couple of weeks ago we spoke about some of the some of the some of the ways that we can practice the way of Jesus. There is a personal responsibility for us to live lives around that that that, that where we order our lives around being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus would do. Where we commit to gathering on Sundays, where we can have fellowship, where we can worship together, where we can engage in teaching, <clears throat> where we can serve, connecting relationally. These are, all of these are so important in our holistic development, serving in our church, in our community, giving. Guys, these things matter. These things, if done, with a humble heart saying, God, I want to grow, it matters. Another question I want to ask is whether or not that dream, that sense, that ideal perhaps, that you've maybe sensed from God sometime in the past, whether or not it's dead or dormant. I read a I read a story that, of course, because my personality I went to double check. So I'm reading this on the plane. I'm, I'm almost having a like a come to Jesus moment. After 20 hours of traveling, I'm, I'm a little bit tired, but I'm like, Ooh, what? I've never ever heard this before. So, again, I wanted to make sure once I had anything, I could like check this out. But, but according to the Smithsonian Magazine, so those of you that know the Smithsonian Museums in Washington, they, they are reputable. Uh, archaeologists, I guess, researchers, they found a seed that was 1900 to, around 1900 to 2,000 years old, found in the Palace of Herod in Masada, Israel, in 2008. The seed? I don't know how they figure these things out, but the seed was a little over 1,900, let's call it 2,000 years old. I don't know about you. I'd look at that. I mean, I wouldn't even notice the seed. I think it's just another little whatever, something to like just, just chew away. They put it into the right soil, and it germinated and grew into a palm plant. After 2,000 years. Now, again, I don't know anything about botany, or if that's even the right word, but, but I'm like, that does not make sense to me. How is something, you see, in my mind, I'm, that's dead. How is something that has been, how is something that has, has, has stayed in that same form for 1900 to 2000 years, how does that suddenly produce life? Apparently, there is something in the coating of the seed that reacts chemically with the nutrients that it is placed into with the right soil. And it can actually bring life. So the question that this author was, this is Mark Sayers, who's also a pastor, author, futurist, et cetera, from Australia. He's like, basically what he was saying is when we think about stuff that that was that. Seeds that had been planted, maybe dreams that you still have. The question is, is it dead or is it just dormant? My question to you is, have you stopped praying certain prayers because you think it's dead? Where the Holy Spirit might be whispering to you saying, it's just dormant. It's just dormant. Don't give up. It needs the right soil. By the way, he goes on to argue that the wrong soil is comfort and convenience. This is a leadership book. And he's talking about how how little takes place in comfort and convenience. How we need to be willing to take risks and stretch out into the grey zone where we all like the black and white. But that's a whole other story. But as I'm as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, God, what have I given up on? What have I settled for? Because I think it's dead, and maybe you're saying, No, no, it's just dormant. We need the right soil. Jesus told several par- parables involving agriculture and involving soils. With the exact same seed in the one parable, the exact same seed is sown. There are four types of soil. Only one of them actually allows it to take root and produce fruit. Is there something, is there something in your heart where the Holy Spirit might say, dare to dream again? Dare to dream again. You have been called to a life-giving life. Don't settle. Do what you can. Trust God to do what He what, what you can't, and actually, just work on the soil. Work on the soil so that that which looks dead, actually you discover is only dormant, and He wants to bring it to life. And here's the last question I want to end with: What legacy will you leave? See again, if we are if we are convinced that that Jesus is life-giving, and that the Jesus way is a life-giving way, and if we are, if we believe that we are called to reach people with the life-giving message of Jesus, if we believe, we shared this last year, that, that we believe we have inherited a legacy that has cost an enormous amount over the last 2,000 years. The legacy that we have received is not cheap. In some cases, in many cases, it has been purchased with people's blood it has been purchased throughout seasons of persecution and martyrdom. It has, been, it, has, it has endured seasons where people have literally had to be willing to lay their lives, and in some cases lay their lives down, in order to try and translate the Bible into languages that, um, that, that have never been recorded before. I, I was talking with someone while we were in Malaysia who's been involved in, in this particular church movement in a few different countries, and at the moment she's in Hong Kong, but 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 it was just, just talking about some of the work that's taking place in China and how and how close China is. I mean still to this day. If you can only go to a free church if you have a passport you know, to prove that you're a foreigner. I have a friend in China who if we're if if we're talking on the phone, he, he will he will refer to the club, which is actually church, or or the coffee group, which would be a life group, or or the book, or or he'll he'll use a different term for God. Yet Yet, the church in China is vibrant. There is, there is resistance, there are challenges, but, but a legacy which has, and I mean, in China, so many people have, have, have had to be willing to lay their lives down. In, she was in Dubai before and, 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 and parts of the, the, the UAE, and she was explaining how even in that context, if, a, if someone from a strict Muslim family gets, like let's say the father gets saved, he actually can't even tell his family. He can't tell his wife, can't tell his kids because, because they, they are motivated, they're incentivized to, to tell on one another. And very likely, it'll be a death sentence. I'm just saying, we haven't inherited a cheap legacy. It is an incredibly expensive legacy and we have a responsibility we we are here to steward this legacy in our generation where you are in terms of reaching people with the life-giving message of Jesus so what legacy will you leave will it just be that you were creative or that you were or that your creativity helped people discover the life-giving message of Jesus Will it just be that, that, that you enjoyed, you know, versatility and chaos and, and, and spontaneity, or that, you, or, that, or that you were flexible and willing to go anywhere and do anything to reach people with the life-giving message of Jesus? Is it that you are a super detail-oriented, sometimes pedantic, anal, uh, you know, who, who cares about all the details and systems, and, and we've got to tickle the right boxes, or that you're all of that in order to help effectively reach people with the life-giving message of Jesus? Are you just fill in the blank in terms of I'm in grade 10, or I'm a, I'm a I'm an accountant, I'm a cleaner, I'm a teacher, or are you that and surrender to God? How do you want to use this to reach people with a life-giving message of Jesus? What legacy will you leave again? Samuel Rodriguez just, um, it's like a side note. He wasn't even speaking, just, just there was a time of prayer and sharing, and then, and then they just the pastor asked him if he had anything to share, because he looked like he had something to share, which he said he didn't, but then he did. Anyway, he just said the following three almost like off-the-cuff comments. I was like, stop. He said, God conquers, we possess, our children inherit. God conquers, we possess, our children inherit. I, I cannot sufficiently articulate how challenged I was to pray more intentionally, more doggedly, with more determination for our children and our children's children and our children's children's children, and maybe even our children's children's children's, 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 children's children to not settle, to not accept some of the labels, some of the limits. God conquers. We should be possessing things that our children can inherit. We, we should not settle for, for just being, uh, for not being overcome, for, for, not, for, not, for not losing the battle on an issue that we think, "Ugh, oh, it's not that big a deal for me, but I'm saying, no, if you don't win the victory in that issue, chances are your children are going to have to win the victory in that issue. What, what battle is God calling us to actually win? And, and possess a particular value and, and possess a a, way, a life-giving life so that our children don't have to fight that battle. They will still have to fight their own. We're not making it easy. Make no mistake. They will have to fight different battles, but why not allow God to conquer us to possess so that our children can actually inherit? What legacy will we leave? What are we going to pass on to our children? And you might be a teenager thinking, uh... I mean, hopefully nothing, like I don't even want to have children. I have one biological child, two children by extension, but who knows how many children beyond that? Don't just think biologically, don't just think immediate family. God is a generational God. Please, let's not be selfish. Please, let's not just, just, just look at what's immediately around us. We are, I'm, I, again, this morning, I'm just thinking of everyone that's serving in Tots and in kids' church, how, how there's no area in our church that actually requires more faith than to just serve diligently and consistently where you don't see immediate fruit. Not that you always do with adults either, but, 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 it's, but, it's, but it's even less. Like, like, you don't see, you don't know whether or not you're hitting the mark. But they are, living for another generation. They are trying to leave a legacy. They are serving their kids. God conquers. We possess. Our children inherit. Sue passed on, by the way, Sue's preaching in Revive Church today in Sunnydale. She's not backslidden. She's just somewhere else. She sent me this quote from Dr. Caroline Leaf. You might have seen it on her social media recently, where she said, be the adult you needed as a child. It's easy for us to be focused on the adult we didn't have as a child. And I'm not, I don't want to invalidate that. Uh, please, I'm not invalidating that. But I'm saying don't let it limit you. I remember sitting with a friend. I really am going to wrap up, I promise. I remember sitting with a friend years ago at a conference in another country, and it was inspiring, man. But he was so, he was so overcome with this belief that because he didn't have a good father, Basically, his destiny was limited, if not ruined. He, he started to name people and say, Oh, you know, look at him and his dad, and that, you know, and this great leader and their father. And I'm like, Are you mad? That's the exception. That's not the norm. If you know anything about Joyce Meyer's story, where she was raped by her own father a couple of hundred times growing up, I'm like, That's someone who didn't allow the person not being the adult that she needed him to be to limit. Being an adult that other people need. Be the adult you needed as a child. Be the parent you needed as a child. Be the friend you needed as a child. Be the hero you needed as a child. What legacy will you leave? We are here to reach people with the life-giving message of Jesus. Let's not settle. Let's do what we can and trust God to do what we can't. Is it dead or is it just dormant? What legacy will you leave?